Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're going to be doing a special November 2019 episode of the podcast. Tonight we're going to be looking at Blade Runner. And for those of you who may suddenly go, oh, Blade Runner, which of the seven different versions should I be watching? Well, (laughs) this is the final cut. The 25th anniversary, Ridley Scott, this is as close to my vision as it's ever going to get version. So that's the one we're talking about. But I think if we had some time, we might talk a little bit about some of the other versions or variants of this this uh, film, which is, as everyone knows, uh, one of the, the epic, great classics of, of all science fiction uh, films. Uh, Rick Deckard is a former Blade Runner, a special cop charged with retiring, read, hunting down and killing, rogue replicants. Replicants are artificial humans that are used as slave labor on Earth's colony worlds, but outlawed on Earth itself. Replicants can have superior strength and intelligence than the humans that created them. Deckard is coerced out of retirement when four replicants have found their way to Los Angeles and attempt to infiltrate the Tyrell Corporation, the company that designs and builds them. Deckard starts his investigation at the top of the Tyrell Corporation with Eldon Tyrell, CEO and master designer of the replicants. Blade Runners employ the Voigt-Kampf test, a physiological test to measure emotional responses to a series of emotionally charged questions. Replicants may be physically equal or superior to humans, but their emotions are underdeveloped. After several years, they begin developing their own emotional framework without the benefit of a human lifetime of experience. For this reason, replicants have a fixed four-year lifespan. Tyrell has Decker demonstrate the test on a human first, his secretary Rachel. After five times as many questions as usually required, he determines that Rachel is not a real human. She is a replicant and doesn't know it herself. Tyrell explains that she is a new development, a replicant with artificial memories copied from a real person. Elsewhere, Roy and Leon, two of the replicants, intimidate the designer of their genetic eyes. They want information about themselves, their inception dates, and programmed lifespans. He does not have access to the information. Only Tyrell does. He gives them the name of another genetic designer, J.F. Sebastian, who has access to Tyrell. Later, Rachel calls on Deckard at his apartment, trying to convince him that, that she's a real human. When he proves otherwise, she is heartbroken and leaves in tears. Pris... Another of the replicants, seemingly homeless, turns up on the doorway of J.F. Sebastian's apartment building. Sebastian magnanimously invites the vulnerable and beautiful Pris into his apartment for food and shelter. Later, while following up leads, Deckard tries to get Rachel to join him at a club, but she turns him down. Deckard's lead brings him to Zora, the fourth of the replicants, working as a stripper in the club. She runs and he retires her in the streets outside. Unbeknownst to him, both Rachel and Leon see him commit the act. Leon, overwrought at Zara's death, attacks Deckard and nearly kills him, but Rachel uses Deckard's gun to retire Leon before he can land the killing blow. Shaken, Deckard and Rachel return to his apartment where Deckard asserts himself for some post-killing sex. Pris, has spent the night at Sebastian's, and now Roy arrives, saddened over Leon's death. Sebastian knows they're both replicants, and he seems sympathetic to them. With a little friendly persuasion, Sebastian agrees to take Roy to meet Tyrell. 
Roy doesn't get the answers he wants from Tyrell. There is nothing Tyrell can do to extend their lifespan. So Roy kills him. And Sebastian. Deckard investigates the death of Sebastian and discovers Pris, and after a brief struggle, retires her, just as Roy returns. Roy is overcome with the loss of his friends at Deckard's hands, the failure of their mission, and he has reached his natural termination date and is beginning to fail. He taunts, hurts, and terrorizes Deckard, pursuing him onto the roof. When he corners Deckard, instead of killing him, he saves him. Roy sits down and retires in front of him. Deckard returns to his apartment to find Rachel, now a fugitive replicant, sleeping. They escape together. Before we start getting really into this, there's two things. Well, there's one thing I want to say right Con- now. Confession time. Confession time. It's, Go on, admit. It's confession time. I, I admit it. Prior. Let's go back a little bit. When Blade Runner came out, um, I was a teenager. And I, there used to be a magazine in the United States called Starlog, very similar to Starburst in the UK. But Starlog I used to cover all the movies coming out and talk behind the scenes. And of course, you know, as, as any magazine of that type, it's kind of a promo magazine. It's glossy, beautiful pictures, interviews. Uh, it gets the hype going for science fiction stuff. So Blade Runner got a lot of prominent coverage on it and i had no interest in that film whatsoever i read all the articles i just was not interested in this film and so i never went to see it and i have never seen this film until a week ago when i watched it in preparation for this podcast so i have never seen any of the original versions the revised versions the director's cuts versions the long version the 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 version for airplanes whatever other versions there are out there i've not seen any of them except for the final cut which per ridley scott this is as close as you're going to get to his vision so that's my confession Uh, i'm not coming into it with any baggage about you know, I think it's a great film. I think it's a terrible film. It's just a film that the, the premise didn't really get me too jazzed up about. So there we go. Simon, what is your experience with Blade Runner and what did you think of it? Well, I'm not sure I should say. I'm not sure I should say what my experience is until until we've heard what you thought of it since it's so new to you. All right. Um it's all right. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> it's all right. It's um, I think probably my if I had a I had a couple of complaints. See now it's going to go on to one of the other things. Um, one of the things is is that there's some incredibly fascinating science fiction ideas, ethical and moral ideas brought up in this movie, and largely subsumed to a pedestrian, not even a pedestrian-level detective story. It, it, as detective stories go, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not Dashiell Hammett. This is, and it, it may be trying to be that, but it ain't that. Um, so I, I'm left wanting with this film. Um, it's very slow at the beginning. It's got some incredible tension at the end. Um, there is there is absolutely no doubt of the skill of the filmmaker, of Ridley Scott. I'm not, not going on that in any way, shape, or form. It's just kind of... It, it just kind of makes me go... I think there's a different story that could have been told in this universe that I would have liked better. I don't know what that story is, but that would have looked at some of the aspects of this in a little less than a superficial way so that's that's one and then then i'll the other one i'll have to tell you with a a bit of reminiscence when i was little eight nine something like that my dad used to own dog kennels and ethics of dog racing aside my dad owned dog kennels and they probably had, oh, 400 dogs on the facility. A very big facility with, you know, multiple units with probably, I think, 50 dogs each. 
And they went through what could only be called a prodigious amount of cut-up newspaper that they used for the bedding. A prodigious amount. And we had a cotton trailer. Now, I don't know if you or the listeners know what a cotton trailer is, um, but it's a very large wire cage on wheels, probably, I don't know, 25 foot long, maybe longer, and then maybe eight, eight to 10 foot high and eight to 10 foot wide, probably eight foot wide because of traffic, and designed for the use of putting picked cotton in. Um, so it's wired up so the cotton doesn't fly out, but at the same time, it's not an airtight it's lighter and my dad had one of those which they would throw the paper in all the newspaper and every couple weeks he'd have to haul that out to the county landfill and on a fair number of occasions I went along with him to the landfill and you know he'd be in there kind of I wouldn't say it's a biohazard but you know he's in there with a pitchfork and I have to go off and kind of not participate in the dumping of the So I would have a lot of time to study the landfill in the morning, very early in the morning. You'd always do this very early in the morning when the the sun in Arizona coming up in the mornings can be incredibly beautiful in the sky. First, it's a dead gray, and then it rises up with a beautiful orange and pinks and, uh, and wispy little clouds occasionally. But you're looking over this huge, wide expanse of trash. And a lot of the trash is dull and gray and ugly and punctuated by flecks of beautiful, brightly colored packaging from things that our capitalist society has marketed to catch the eye and cause you to buy things at the store. And there would be the occasional person in it and perhaps some scavenger birds. And I I was honestly fascinated by it. Uh, the, the one thing you're not fascinated by, and you'll never forget it if you've ever been there, is the smell. And, and luckily, you know, we don't have smell-o-vision. But it was this alien, gray, yet colorful with an odd beauty landscape to it. But ultimately, it was ugly. If Ridley Scott had been shooting this, it would still be ugly. But it would be endlessly fascinating, <laughs> like it kind of was to eight-year-old me. This is an ugly film. It's beautiful and ugly simultaneously. Uh, His eye is amazing. His subject matter is a shithole. And (laughs) I've spent enough time in dumps. I I don't don't need to spend more. I guess that's... So I'm kind of conflicted about it. I can can just see the brilliance in his eye. in, In... in his way he looks through a camera and stages his stuff up but at the same time it's like but why would this be what you'd want to put on the screen i don't i don't <laughs> fathom so i mean those are the two things that that come to my mind about it it's, it's there's a lot of good to it 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 deserves its place as as a classic whether it deserves its place as a classic as high as the esteem that it is held in i'm not sure but I didn't come off of it going, whoa, that is the best sci-fi film I've ever seen. Oddly enough, my favorite, therefore, what I consider the best sci-fi film is also a Ridley Scott, The Martian. So, um, there you go. So that's my initial, my initial thought on it. Which, I mean, surprisingly enough, is quite similar to my initial thought. I, I... I can't remember as precise. I mean, when this film came out, I, 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 I wouldn't have even 83? been re- considering uh, eighty-two. I think could be. I certainly, I certainly wouldn't have been considering going to see it since I wouldn't have met the age requirements um, for, for being enough. allowed in. But um, by the time I did get around to see it, I think it had developed its reputation. Um, I'm thinking probably early 90s. I'm not entirely sure which version I saw because well, probably by the time I saw it, not this version, I know that, Yeah, but the director's cut or the so-called director's cut might have been around by then, probably was around by then. Um, having said that, I've kind of, 
I've got a memory of there being a voiceover. Uh, there was a, a voiceover which was right. for the theatrical version and it <clears> was <throat> taken out for the subsequent cuts. And and also, at the time, I had really very little interest in sci-fi films. Um, and I I was much more interested in detective stories. So your comment, you know, it's it's not really Dashiell Hammett. I I watched it and I thought there's you know there are there are some impressive visuals here and the, the certain scenes even now stuck in my mind from then but at the end of it I did kind of think Bleh. you know so that you know that was that was that was that was not worth the hype the plot is very very simple essentially it involves your protagonist your morally ambiguous hard-boiled detective slash private brown coat wearing yep 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 all of that you know he has to he has to track down four bad guys and kill them and this is the story of how that happens and it basically is that you know that is that is the plot in essence notwithstanding the the important additional details that you covered in your synopsis i would say that my view of this film has changed over time and possibly because I've seen the, you know, the the 2007 version. I think I've seen probably about three or four times since that was released. And I've I've come to appreciate certain things about this film. I mean, for one thing, I kind of think it is Dashiell Hammett. I mean, it really is. The the whole. I mean. I think I've I think I've I think I've encountered the same thing watching sort of the Maltese Falcon or whatever. The plot can get kind of complicated in the details, as in asking Chandler who killed the chauffeur or whatever, him not necessarily being able to answer it, it, it in in the big sleep. And so and and it you know it's kind of there are bits of this film where I'm still watching it and I'm still trying to figure out what was going on um, and who is what or who knows what but it is essentially a film noir it has all of the all of those trappings we've just mentioned and plus you know the visual style is a film noir all the all that sort of the smoke drifting up and the light lighting it through venetian blinds with ceiling fans and everything it absolutely is a film noir and i I'd, I'd almost go as far as to say, you know, that's first and foremost before it's science fiction. It's 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 what it, it's been described as a neo noir, which I I guess is just a more recent film noir. And I think <laughs> I think I think that is true. And in particular, I mean, I, th- I think I just about think my favourite scene is the scene where Deckard gives Rachel the Voigtkampf test. The from from do you like our owl through to discussing her with Tyrell after she's left the room and it's 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 just steeped in in that atmosphere Mm -hmm. watching it this time I've noticed something that I I I think might be I don't I don't know whether it detracts from that because it is to me it, it, it just does feel so well done but it is a mechanism for hiding the artificiality of the replicants because it's using the mannerisms of noir and the the you know those the kind of very Rachel is the classic femme fatale, right? I mean, hmm. it's it's so much so almost to the extent that it is pastiche, and she's also a replicant. And during the scene, you if you're if you're familiar with those conventions, you think what you're what you're being shown is exactly that it's it's someone doing the doing the femme fatale performance and then in the dialogue afterwards you, you get the reveal but when you rewatch it again you can see that actually perhaps that performance is about something else it is about showing some of these sort of slightly off things that are to do with reactions and empathy and what have you which is of course it, you know it comes right back to what those characters in the 1940s were all about. So I, I do find that crossover 
absolutely fascinating. Hmm. I I I get what you're I get what you're saying, and I think you've got it right because there is a sort of stilted uh, way to like absolutely, the femme fatale yes. in a in a classic film noir film. Is it the genius of Ridley Scott that he hired an actress who can't act to play that part? <laughs> <laughs> because she this is like her first part. She and and they said you know he had to spend a lot of time coaching her so i, I don't know I, I i've heard that there was some dissatisfaction with her inexperience um not necessarily from ridley scott but from you know just the people around and so when you watch that i kind of look at it and i think is that just because she's just not natural on camera or is that brilliance that she's just not nat that she's acting just not natural on camera or is it brilliance that the director hired someone who would intentionally look that way when, when she's on camera i don't know i i i don't I, know i i like i like the fonts we get on screen but i but it but it is mannered and it i don't you know i don't know to what extent that is to do well you know i kind of do i think that harrison him harrison ford himself is the the performance he's giving is is the kind of it is the same thing it is it's it it fits within that that film noir um that that template um and some of the other characters you know um uh, edward james olmos it's same kind of thing very sort of um cryptic minimalist or stylistic (laughs) stylistic stylistic absolutely so for whatever reason, I think that is incredibly effective. That that kind of that kind of crossover, and it and it is it is a, it is a kind of because the the visuals in this film are just so absolutely extraordinary. And I and I think the you know the way you describe shooting a shooting a rubbish tip, and and uh, incidentally there is a rubbish tip in the sequel. Um, not shot by Ridley Scott, um, but but nevertheless photographed by Roger Deakins, and it looks. Ah, oh, now you see, beautiful. you've seen the sequel, and so that might have... retcon or not retcon or clean up or mess up some of this film. So try to. It does yourself. a bit, and I I I I'm gonna I I think I'm gonna have to come back to that. This is the first time I've watched it since seeing the sequel, so it it was okay. a slightly. Yes, it was a slightly different experience, um, but and 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 it did it did influence some of the visuals, and it did make me think about the story because you said when you were when you were talking about your impression of it that you would like to have seen a different story told in this world, and the sequel mm-hmm. is a different story told in this world, whether it's different enough. Um, so you so you do have that opportunity, and I think one of the things is that the sequel is definitely not a film noir. So that's you know that's a very big difference, and also it it is visually stunning, but it is quite visually different from this. And so those shots at the opening with the 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 flames co- coming up and you know <laughs> uh-huh. flying flying outside the, the Tyrell Corporation building all of the kind of street and incidentally that that stuff um i was chatting yesterday to my friend who absolutely adores this film and he said it always reminds him of port talbot and i had understood though i can't actually find a source for this so maybe a just a legend but that ridley scott was actually inspired in his look for 2019 los angeles by the appearance of Port Talbot. And it wouldn't be the only film, the only massively important, massively impressive and visually stunning film that was influenced by Port Talbot because that is where Terry Gilliam got his inspiration for Brazil. And it... Th- you might I, want to it, describe or give more information on Port Talbot. Okay, right. Yes, no, fair enough. In, international listeners. Port Talbot is uh, a South Wales town that is absolutely dominated by its steelworks. So it's incredibly industrial in its appearance, you you know, thinking um, huge chimneys and pipework everywhere, belching out extremely foul-smelling smoke and uh, 
if you film something in Port Talbot, you certainly do it without smell vision. And <laughs> so, so you know, it's that it's that stuff. Uh, it's that stuff burning off. And and uh, for Gilliam, it was it was the the it was a guy sitting with the radio listening to Brazil on a coal covered sandy beach. You know, just as a result of the the coal dust. But in 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 visual terms, I think you know it is it is high praise to de- to describe what we see on the screen in in Blade Runner as being kind of Gilliam esque in the the degree to which it is realized and realized in a a, a Gilliam film ha- has a sense of authenticity that derives from filth, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at Gilliam's, you know, Jabberwocky or whatever, his he takes you to medieval England or wherever by basically covering everyone in shit, and it it is, as you say, a, a version of Los Angeles, and I won't say what actual Los Angeles in November twenty nine is like because I've never visited it in person, but it's 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 ugly, but it is. It is beautiful at the same time because he creates it in such a complete, such a fully immersive way. Oddly enough, I would say Los Angeles in 2019 is better than Los Angeles in 20 or in 1982. So, in in some ways, uh, and where uh, does Ridley Scott's Los Angeles fit? Is that is that somewhere below 1982 or somewhere in between? Oh, oh yeah, below. <laughs> like, Los Angeles doesn't look anything like that. Um, at all, really. The only thing that looks like that that I could see in Los Angeles that looks recognizably Los Angeles is the Bradbury Building, which is a real, which is a real building. But we really kind of only see the inside of it in this uh, in this film. The the lighting in this is 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 incredible as well. And I I was I was reading that they overshot some sequences so they would actually light the set and then they would wind the film back and they'd shoot it again having relit it i mean it's it is just extraordinary and the, and the i won't be forgiven by joe if i don't also mention the soundtrack the, the evangelist soundtrack that creates and it, and kind of evokes that that atmosphere and that sense when you're watching it mm. Mm. i'm a big fan of evangelist and um I would say that the Blade Runner end theme music is probably my favorite piece of music by Vangelis. You were already but familiar like, with the music. Yes, I I was. Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes. I in fact the very when when Fusion Patrol was a public access TV show back in the 80s, early 90s. Um the very first episode, the end theme was the Blade Runner theme. It, it is, it's one of my favorites. My, I, I really do like Vangelis, but, and here's a caveat, and I have many of his albums. Every one of his albums has got one or two just amazing tracks to my ear. And then he has a bunch of kind of tinkly, disinteresting soundscapes to me. The Blade Runner soundtrack is no different. Um, the theme is amazing. A lot of the soundtrack is discordantly out of place to me. I don't, I don't actually feel in places that it fits. In places it does, and in places it doesn't. It's just, but it's very unique. It's but, very but, distinctive. But is that not because you've, it's, it is incredibly distinctive. Uh, I wonder if that's because you've a familiarity with it already. And so, I mean, I couldn't, I, could, I couldn't bring the Blade Runner theme to mind. I mean, if you played it, I would recognise it. And if you played anything by Vangelis, I would recognise it as Vangelis. I've kind of come from the opposite direction, which is I hate Vangelis. And um, <laughs> that, may be, that may be unfair. It may be a product of the, you know, the times when we were at the Minac Theatre and the, the uh, assistant manager insisted on playing the soundtrack to 1492 over and over and over and over again until we absolutely hated it. I don't actually think I have or have heard the 1492 soundtrack. So I will, I will go. uh, There, there is, there is something about it. The, 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 the music, the lighting, the, the, the way, the way in which the, the detail is there and and the and this the stylizedness of everything 
creates a really kind of strong, a strong. So there's something. There's something again. It's just struck me in in watching it this time because rewatching the film again, I I kind of spot something slightly different each time. And one of the things is, it, 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 like I say, it has this very simple plot, and it it sort of is a way of hanging off from it a whole bunch of really really quite impressive set pieces um mostly impressive set pieces i i did i watched it with a critical eye and i did i did kind of rediscover some of the things that from watching it the first time turned turned me off of it but essentially it has these set pieces some of which like that sequence i mentioned with the voigtkampf test on rachel like the 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 the, the 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 many creatures in J.F. Sebastian's apartment, like the the scenes on the roof, um, like the like the, the street scenes and and so forth, they are all it. What what it does is it kind of lodges a memory in your head uh, that it can't quite put my finger on, but it's it's you know it's very strongly there. That it's and it's it's a memory that's complete with sense. You know, it's like you you don't just have a visual still image in your head you're you're picturing the 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 wisps of smoke circling up to the ceiling fan and you're picturing the particular tones of voice and the mannerisms and and the the kind of the it's almost like the texture of the floor because you you, know, you get that sense of of the heels of the shoes clipping on the polished marble and all the rest of it it's there's a there's a real sort of solid sense of memory there and again mm. i wonder if that is deliberate because oh this whole idea of memories being implanted is such a big theme in this film and in the you know in the idea of replicants and what it means to be human and whether you can tell whether you are human and and, and so on um because if mm-hmm. if if that is done as a deliberate plot, I mean, it's so incredibly effective. But if it was also intentional, it would be hugely impressive. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make my plans that probably was not deliberate in that way. But but I see your point. Uh, see your point. I think it's a little more. The whole notion of memories is. I think it's heavily influenced by the pictures more than anything else. But the use of photographs as memories, but yeah, you know, I don't know if if. It's but it, it is. Be... It's unusual. It's unusual for these for a film because because it is so different, and that is one of the things about it. But it is unusual for a film to particularly have so many different kind of very it it because they are in a sense they are snapshots. They're just they're particular scenes from within the film, but it's. It's just because the, the those that they're realised with such richness that the the memories feel very strong. They feel very real, and I, I I don't think there are many films that give you that sort of. I mean, there are certainly others, the particular scenes or sequences that lodge very firmly in the mind. But I think Blade Runner, in particular, is just remarkable in how much it does that. Mm. I think that's fair. Now, I will say that uh, in normal preparation for like an episode of Fusion Patrol, um, on my first watch of something, I will be taking notes. I will already be looking at it critically at at that point. Um, Because there's always the very real possibility on our schedule that that I won't get a second watch through it. I usually try try to do them twice, but, but I can't waste the first one just in case. I made a big effort with Blade Runner to get this thing weeks in advance and made up movie night with the family. No one in the family had seen the film. Best I could tell them was supposed to be one of the best science fiction films ever made. Um, you know, dimmed the lights, set the, set the thing, got the popcorn, the whole nine yards, no notes, no pad, no nothing. This is, I'm going to watch Blade Runner as proper as I can. In 2019, not being at a theater, but but on the home theater, and a the kids ditched it in, in two minutes, and um, 
my wife and I sat through it. Um, and it's kind of, you know, I came off, but I was, I was going for that. I'm not going to be critical. I'm not picking this apart. I'm trying to take this film at, at its line. And, and, and that's where, when I came up with it, yeah, it's all right. That's, that's, that's what I came off of it. And my wife kind of like, really, that's supposed to be one of the best science fiction. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> sorry. And, uh, but you know, yes, all of the, then you watch it through on critical view and you see some stuff that you don't see. And it, and I think it's, it's very telling that, you know, we're, I don't know, 30 minutes into the podcast and we're still talking about the look of the film, <laughs> right? It was the first thing in my notes. You know, I go through my categories. Like, yeah, what do we talk about first? Than- the look of the film, because it's the look of the film is kind of, is the soul of this film. Oh, it's absolutely, yeah, everything, everything rests on that. Everything rests on that. But it's also the pacing. And I, I mean, that is maybe one of the things that may have put people off. I mean, Pass. I don't, I, I, I don't yes, know I what so. kinds of films your, your kids like, but I certainly know with some of my nephews and nieces that anything older than 10 years um, is going to be a problem for pacing. To, and this was, you know, it, the reason we've got all of this mess with the being a, a theatrical release and a director's cut and then a, a, a final cut is because when it was released, it tested badly and the studio wanted to mess around with it and, and add all sorts of things in, voiceover, happy ending, yada, yada, yada. Um, and also mess around with some things that are central to the plot um people people found it slow people found it slow and yet we are talking about the kind of second viewing stuff that you pick up because even though it's slow you're you're not getting it all the first time through and uh, so whatever i'm on my fourth or fifth what watching of it i'm still picking up stuff that i haven't picked up before and i'm still figuring out stuff that you know the there's a there are layers to it. There's such a kind of complexity in the detail and the the, the kind of uh, philosophical elements of it that um, it, it, it's, it's it's there's almost a paradox there between the the um, the fact that it, it it feels slow and yet the fact that there is such a lot going on. Let's uh, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the the replicants. I've got a bunch of uh, I got a bunch of points here that. And it does all kind of come back to what's fascinating about this story to me is the replicants, uh, more so than the detective story. And and I know that we get into this kind of thing with Firefly, where it's like, I would really like to understand the economics of this. This is not so much an economics thing, but it's like the the decisions that they've made, the the reason that they've implemented this technology in the way that they've implemented this technology is I, I I really want to understand the 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 drive. So, you know, why are they indistinguishable from human? Is 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 the human form so express and admirable in moving? So so noble in reason, so infinite in faculty that the designers at Tyrell <laughs> couldn't make it better? But seriously, right? W- would you would you make a warrior robot like Roy is the human form really the best that the idea that they could come up with wouldn't camouflage colored skin be an improvement if nothing else I mean it creating a slave race which is what they've done with technology that's so amazing that they could have made anything <laughs> you know that that, that could be superior for what their purposes are. Yes, I get the sex ones. You probably want those to look like women or men or whatever your your inclination is. I get that one. But the robots, the 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 nuclear pile loaders, and if they're outlawed on Earth, and why is it that they're outlawed on Earth? That didn't even the little intro thing didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Why wouldn't they be more? Why wouldn't there be something obvious about them, like a serial number on the bottom of their foot or, you know, anything that you wouldn't have to go through this Voight-Kampf test? And I, I, all of that 
it raises so many questions to me that I get that the moral dilemma is that we've made something so human that is it not, is it human, is it not human? I get that that's the central idea, but at the same time, that central idea is like, why isn't, why would you do that for the stated purposes in this story? And, and, and in this version, there is no answer, as far as I can tell to those questions. Maybe in some of the deleted scenes or alternate scenes, there may be some of the things that they cut out, that there, there may be some answers. But, but in this version, I don't, I, 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 don't quite, I don't quite get it. And of course, why would you make them on Earth if they're outlawed on Earth? Tyrell can't afford a factory off-world somewhere? That, that also well, is very You don't know where they're made, strange. do you? Uh, ooh, uh, deleted scene. Yes, they're made on Earth. Sorry, that, that is not in this film. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, it's hard. I, I, in a way, I didn't want to watch the deleted scenes or any other version because I didn't want, because I knew that this film has so many different variants and not just variants <laughs> that have been cut and edited, but variants that were made as they were making the film and that they were running along with, you know, what, what was and what wasn't. I mean, I, I know that there's like, Harrison Ford is absolutely certain when they were making the film, Deckard is not a replicant. Ridley Scott, Deckard is a replicant. You know, it, you're, you're, and it's shot in kind of different ways. <laughs> so it's tough. It, it's tough trying to, to draw a through line here. But yeah, okay. I don't know that they're, well, in the this other, version, the other... I don't know that they're made on Earth. But why, why would their no, labs no. and everything be on Earth? It, you know, it, it, just, it just doesn't... Well, because, because the people working there want to live on Earth. So it's, I mean, it's why you why you. It doesn't seem like any... anybody would want to live on Earth. <laughs> well, that, well, that's right? possible. Didn't Jeff Sebastian that, say, that, I that, can't make it? There is a question a... there. The, the, um, neither of us, I think, I'm assuming you haven't read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I haven't. I haven't. I, I thought about getting read... it and I thought that would be even worse. <laughs> I I, no, I I I'd be really interested in reading it. Um, I have, however, heard the radio adaptation of much closer to the book than the this film. The, this film, yeah, you know, this this film is is I don't think we've mentioned it, but it is loosely based on Philip K. Dick's novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," which was about fifteen years old when the the film was made, and yeah. in itself was quite a sort of groundbreaking book exploring these these ideas about uh, empathy but and... was considered not action oriented enough to make an interesting film which you know arguably is the problem that people have with it you know in in terms mm -hmm. of it not having done well at the time and in terms of it not necessarily appealing to us to, to your kids today um i don't i don't i, I mean i'm not sure that uh, I, I i pretty much hate the having a scrolling text at the beginning of any film. So um, I'm not going to go out of my way to defend that. I'm not sure it ever bothers me why you have um, androids do You know, they're, I mean, obviously you have the androids in, in these jobs and the, the, the kind of the reasons the Nexus 6 are, are so strong and so powerful, etc., is because they are doing these jobs. Why are they like humans? I think that um, the backstory to do androids dream of electric sheep uh, has all to do with a, a, a nuclear war which has wiped out a lot of life on earth and therefore animals are quite rare and unusual and so you have artificial animals instead and uh, and artificial humans as servants and you can kind of see why you would want your servant to be like a human if you were the feudal to want to have a servant so it may be just in purely development terms that that's where that stuff has come from because that's the backstory in the book and that the, you know the book may explain it in a way that satisfies you in in terms of providing a, a sort of coherent and, and comprehensive explanation for it but when the film comes along it doesn't carry all of that over because it just wants to get on with the actual story in the film the exploration of the issue in the film um that's the best i can come up with i, d I, d I don't think there are answers in the film 
you're right about that. I just personally don't necessarily worry too much about it. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the replicants attempting to meet their creator, Tyrell, to get yep. more life to fix their creation. Now, <clears throat> I don't think I'm stepping on any any uh, secrets here from our previous conversations that uh, neither you nor I particularly believe in a uh, divine creator of the universe <clears throat> or a designer of humans or, or, or anything of that nature. So I wonder, because these things fascinate me, Roy and the others know they are created. This is not Bible tells me so. This is real documented fact. We were designed and created by the Tyrell Corporation, mostly by Eldon Tyrell. He created us the way we are with all of the perfections and imperfections. And one of those is that we die in four years. And so how does their, how do I put this? Is their attitude similar because of that or or different because of that than say people who are truly devout to use christians as a as an easy example uh creationists who believe that god created man exactly as he is um and because i think i think we can all agree even religious people because i know there's a whole branch of uh um uh, justification going on there about why God would create such a flawed, broken piece of equipment. Why would humans get cancer? Why would, you know, all of these things that... Why do we get old? Why do we get old? Why do we break down? Why do, you know, all of these things that you could look at and say, if I were designing a human, I could do a better job. And I know there's the whole, well, you know, how do we hide this? It's God's plan. We can't, we can't understand it. We're not smart enough. Where we, we don't have the vision to understand, but it's a it's a brilliant, masterful plan, which you know, to me That's sounds right. like an ex, an excuse. And there's a line in this film, but again, right? This is this is even. But I think most people, you know, even I think the Pope doesn't really believe that God created it that way. There's no Adam and Eve. We weren't. They they they've got kind of an understanding here that, but the replicants know that Tyrell created them the way they are. This is not, you know, there, there's no waffling out of it. God created replicants this way. There's a line that Pris says, and to, to Roy at one point, he says, Leon's dead. And she says, we're stupid and we'll die. Is that, is that, I can't understand God's plan. I'm not smart enough. We're too stupid. You know, we'll never see, we'll never see it. Is that that manifestation of that idea there? I thought it was such a weird line at the time, the first time I heard it. I'm like, why would she say that? Every indication has been that these replicants are as smart or smarter than humans, or at least capable of processing information. And yet, that, and then she's got a very low self-esteem opinion there. Um, and there's the spot and you're on it. <laughs> Yes. Okay. I well, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, I, I don't have any sense that they have faith in their creator. I mean, obviously, there are all of the parallels you just described in terms of you know creating a creating a a, a flawed human, just like the real flawed human, and the questions of you know, why you do that, do, do indeed transfer straight across. But as you say, they know, they know why that is. They don't, there's, this isn't, this isn't a kind of pilgrimage that they're on. This isn't in any sense a religious quest. They have a very clear motivation in this, which is that they think that because the creator is the person who created them and had the knowledge to do that they are the person who had to extend their life or to remove the 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 kind of the life expert limiter yeah. life exploration that's 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 built into them um I, I just say you know when you have facts which they do you don't need faith there's the difference 
I mean, this, this, this yeah, is well, indication well. of if you had religion, if you, if religion had facts that that a God created us, then you don't need to have faith. You, you right, and that's that's kind of what position they're in. They're uh, <clears throat> yeah. Pris Pris is is I don't know if it's low self esteem or if it's it is a strange line. I, I hadn't thought about it, but I grant you it is a strange line. It's it's coming on the back of discovering that um, Leon and Zora are dead. So they yeah. they they haven't done what she hoped they would do, which is that all four of them would survive and prevail. They're you know, they're halfway to to having been wiped out. And that seems to be where she's coming from. But uh, oddly um, enough, she said that, they're know. they're two thirds towards the way of being wiped out. The first two that were killed before the show started, no one bothers to mention. You, you, yeah, fair enough. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which I would have, in a way, I would have thought, because one of the things that we see here in the characters is that they show emotional loss for their yes. friends. Yes. And they've lost two friends already. And, yes. you know, there's, there's, the others are kind of out. A um, bit of an oversight. As you can probably imagine, our discussion of Blade Runner The Final Cut has run longer than a typical episode of Fusion Patrol. So we've decided to break it up into two parts, and I do hope you'll join us all next time for part two of Blade Runner The Final Cut on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.